Father, we bow in humble adoration, thanking you and worshiping you that you would speak to us and reveal yourself to us by your word. As we come before your word now, may it be so with great dependence upon you, not presuming that we of our own accord and our own autonomy can somehow understand your word ourselves, but recognize, acknowledge, and depend upon the leading and the illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide us, to exposit this word, to give us application of your word. So, Father, may we come into your presence worshiping you and hearing today, if you hear his voice, may we not harden our hearts. May we be doers of your word and not mere hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. And I would ask one more time, if you are able to please stand for the reading of God's word, which is we are continuing in our summer study of the Psalms, looking at the songs or the Psalms of Ascents. Our wandering pilgrim, we have discovered, has landed in, has finally arrived at his destination, Jerusalem and the house of the Lord. And so we are on Psalm 123. So hear the word of the Lord. The psalmist declares, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I read this particular article this week in doing some research for the message this morning. And the writer of this article says, I want you to imagine a particular situation. So I want you to picture this. The worship leader mounts the platform. And in a booming voice, he announces the hymn. He looks intently at the congregation, a smile crossing his face, and he exhorts the congregation, sing it like you mean it. There's no room in this church for sad faces when you are so loved by the Lord. If you are a Christian, let's hear you sing out with booming enthusiasm and joy. And then begins this hymn. And the hymn goes like this. O safe to the rock that is higher than I, my soul in its conflicts and sorrows would fly. So sinful, so weary, thine, thine would I be, thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. The author makes the following point. He states, I wonder how many in the congregation... And I couldn't help but think as I was looking at this, I wonder how many of us sitting, see how careful you're listening, I wonder how many caught the disparity, the difference between what was sung, the content, and how it was being sung. This author goes on to say, I felt relief in acknowledging conflict, sorrow, sin, weariness, loneliness, tempest, enemies, Woe and trials, 
But he says, but we seem to bounce over both the sorrow and the hope with a mood of exuberant, smiling enthusiasm. He says, Christians seldom sing to the minor key. We seemed predisposed to fear and avoid lament as a quick slide into doubt and despair, failing to see that doubt and despair are the dark soil that is necessary to grow obedience and joy. Remember, I've said that as we're going through the Psalms, the first job that is required of us in interpreting the Psalms, because they're poetry, this is the hymn book, this is the prayer book of the Old Testament church, is to identify what is called the genre of the particular Psalm. It gives us its interpretive clue to the meaning of the Psalm. And Psalm 123 is a Psalm of lament. The psalmist has arrived at the house of the Lord, and guess what? He's arrived, he's at his destination, you would think all is great, but no, his life is still filled with trouble. In other words, if you become a Christian, and you think, ah, I've become a Christian, my life now is going to be rosy and great, every moment of every day, pie in the sky, Let me give you a practical word, read the Psalms. Because our life is still filled with tension and conflict and difficulties. Perhaps you came to church, you came to worship feeling a little bit of this yourself this morning. You need to hear from the Lord and His word to you is don't be afraid of lament. Don't be afraid of the minor key. The writer goes on to say, he says, sadly, we have misunderstood the great value of both public and private lament. He says, to lament, that is to cry out to God with our doubts, our incriminations of him and others, to bring a complaint, yes, against him, is the context for surrender. He says, surrender, the turning of our heart ever to him, asking for mercy and receiving his terms for restoration is impossible without battle. He writes, Christians often assume our conflict with God was finished when we first converted. He says, at that point, we were enemies of God. Indeed, we were, and it was a great battle. But the battle is not over with conversion, though it is the decisive victory that assures the outcome of the war. It is hardly the last and final fight. He says, sanctification, the Christian life, the walk with God, is a lifetime process of surrendering as more and more intense conflicts with God and others expose and dissolve, listen carefully, our urgent preoccupation with the self. The lament is the battle cry against God that paradoxically voices a heart of desire and ironic faith in his goodness. Friends, we must learn to lament if our relationship with God is going to grow in passion and authenticity. And the language of lament is the Psalms. See, in the Psalms we learn the language of wisdom, of hymns, of praise, of celebration, of confidence, and yes, of lament. Psalm 123 is a lament, and it's a song of lament, and it's a song that is structured in two stanzas, verses 1 and 2, and verses 3 and 4. And these two stanzas teach us two things. 
In the first stanza, we learn the dependence of the longing soul. Which leads us in the final stanza to the mercy given to the longing soul. The dependence of the longing soul which leads to the mercy given to the longing soul. Okay, let's look at the text. Follow with me now at verses 1 and 2 which begins, To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord, our God, till he has mercy upon us. Now did you notice something in this text? Did you notice here that in Psalm 123, this particular psalm of ascent The psalmist begins with the very same phrase that was used at the beginning of the Psalms of Ascents. Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes. One commentator wrote very appropriately of this. He says this indicates a focus of awareness and is a gesture of deep longing. I think one of the reasons that we struggle with lament is because being aware Deeply aware, self-aware of what's going on in your soul can be painful, quite painful. It requires focus, a deep focus, and a willingness to acknowledge your brokenness. Not just your sinfulness in this general sense, like I sin and fall short of the glory of God, but lament calls upon you and kind of presses in upon you to actually name your brokenness. We would rather suppress our emotions, especially our difficult emotions, the areas where God doesn't make sense to us, where we are confused and disoriented, lost in doubt. See, what happens in Psalm 121, the psalmist does what he says, I lift up my eyes where? To the hills looking for his source of help. He saw the hills, the dangers lurking all around him, the rough terrain, and he says, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Here, he lifts up his eyes directly to God, the source of help. He looks, his gaze is directly at God. He says, to you, I lift up my eyes. See, that's key in a lament. A lament, you're crying out honestly. You're processing. You're being authentic. You're being raw. But you're doing it moving towards God and processing the difficulties and the disorientations in the presence of God. See, this is very important. Lament is directed towards God. It's not meeting with your friend necessarily over a cup of coffee, but pure lament is directed towards God. See, recognize this, my friends. A willingness to lament to express your deepest, raw heart to God is not a sign of unbelief or a lack of faith, but it's actually a sign of faith. It is a sign of trust that the Lord is big enough, strong enough, and powerful enough to handle your deepest, darkest emotions and heart. See, if you're not willing to pour yourself out to God, ask yourself this kind of searching question. Do you really trust that God's big enough to handle you? I know we say, I'm asking us to look at your life and functionally go, 
See, the psalmist here is about to deeply lament, and he says quite assuredly, quite directly, to you, I gaze, I focus, I lift up my eyes. It takes courage to be self-aware and move towards God. And who is this God that he's moving towards? The text says, to the one enthroned in the heavens. In other words, he's the king. The sovereign. See, what does enthroned mean? It's on a throne. He's superior. He's sovereign. He's the one filled with splendor and majesty. The king of the universe. And verse 2 describes the nature of the psalmist's dependence. Quite strikingly is the simile that he uses here that he says, he looks to God as servants look to the hand of their master. And interestingly enough, commentators remind us that in the Old Testament, the hand was understood as a source of power. So here is the psalmist expressing his dependence, willing to wrestle with the very power of God. In other words, he's willing to wrestle with the glory of God, the transcendence of God. Tremper Longman commenting on this reminds us, he says, the temple, because remember he's arrived in Jerusalem, the house of the Lord, the temple was the locus of God's presence on earth. And the Ark of the Covenant was thought to be the footstool of his throne. Whereas the temple represented the heavenly realities. Remember back in Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah's call, his commission to prophetic mission, ministry, it took place in the setting of the heavenly court. See, one of the things we have to do, and the psalmist does this here, is he is being confronted with the very transcendent glory of God. Remember Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, this is Isaiah chapter 6, he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, in other words, enthroned, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. The psalmist says, To you I lift up my eyes, to the one who is enthroned. He is willing to be confronted with the glory of God. See, here's a practical application. We must be confronted with the transcendent glory of God if we are to be rocked out of our self-sufficiency and self-reliance into the humble dependence and submission of a longing soul. Do you realize that the battle that rages in our hearts and souls is a battle of glory? It is a battle between the glory of God and our own glory. See, we don't submit and we don't want to be confronted with the glory of God because we know at heart that the battle that is raging is a battle for our own autonomy. We are deeply committed to our own autonomy. And God loves us enough, pursues us enough, I'm always reminded of C.S. Lewis Aslan character where he says he's not a tame lion. He loves us enough to shake us out of our autonomy and most frequently that involves shaking up our lives and that brings lament or, see it can be a crossroads or a suppression, a denial, 
A refusal to wrestle, a refusal to struggle, to do battle with God. See, most of us, or many of us, and I think this is where there's not more power, more passion, more authenticity in our lives, avoid this confrontation with glory. And why do we avoid this confrontation and thus the dependence, the surrender of the longing soul? Because we truly do not understand the grace and mercy that are given to the broken and longing soul. Do we understand the heart of God? Elsewhere in the Psalms, the psalmist proclaims that he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And Isaiah prophesying about the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus himself read in Luke chapter 4, says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn. Do we trust God enough to entrust Him in dependence and in surrender with our brokenness and our anxieties and our confusion and our disorientation and our doubts do we trust his hand of power? To you I lift up my eyes to the one enthroned. That's the heart of the Lord. Which leads us to our next point. If you see the dependence of the longing soul, you need to see that what is needed most is the mercy given to the longing soul. Look with me at verse 3 and 4, the second stanza of this poem. <clears throat> and the psalmist cries out. Now he's given the reason why he's lamenting and crying out. He says, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease. Of the contempt of the proud. I don't know about you, but and I'm not sure this is how long ago this. I remember a phrase, maybe it was when Joel was growing up or something like that. There was a phrase that was going around. You, hear people say, I'm over it. Is that phrase still said today? I don't know if it is or not. Where people just kind of go, that's it. I, I've had enough. I'm over it. The psalmist here is daring and courageous enough to tell the Lord he's over it. I mean, are you reading this with me? Are you following a Lord along? For he says, we have had more than enough of contempt. Do you hear the psalmist's soul? He says, I'm weary, I'm burdened, I'm tired of this. He says, our soul, he's speaking for the community at large, has had enough of the scorn of those who are fat and happy, who are rich and at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Now you get the psalmist's raw, real emotion of why he's lamenting and crying out for mercy and relief. He is suffering contempt and indignities at the hands of the powerful and the arrogant. Recognize the psalmist gives us language to express our lament. Maybe you can relate to how he's feeling. We've had more than enough of contempt. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you read that and you struggle with the language of lament. Maybe your gut reaction is you go, ooh. I'm not sure, that sounds a little bit too much like complaining or grumbling or self-pity, which is condemned and frowned upon in Scripture. Well, let's ask a very practical question. What is the difference between lament and grumbling? 
What is the difference between true lament that it sure seems like God honors in his word and invites in his word and complaint or grumbling which God would condemn in his word? A particular writer I find to be extremely helpful here is a man by the name of Dan Allender who's written a book called The Cry of the Soul. And in this he took, takes a lot of the emotions that we feel and he describes their unholy expression and their holy expression. So he has two chapters on each emotion. So for example, he'll take anger and he'll say with anger, there is certainly unrighteous anger, but there's also a righteous anger. He'll take shame and he says there is an unrighteous shame that's all focused on itself and then there's a righteous shame or there's shame for your sin. He takes the issue of contempt and the difference here between contempt and self-pity or complaining and listen to what he says. He says, it is crucial to comprehend a lament is as far from complaining or grumbling as a search is from aimless wandering. He says, a grumbler or a complainer has already reached a conclusion shut down all desire, and postures with questions that are barely concealed accusations. He gives the example of a spouse who says, you never have time for me. You can talk with your friends till all hours of the night, but I ask you to sit with me and you're too busy. Do you want this marriage to work or not? Or not? He says, these words may at first sound like a lament, but it's not. It's grumbling and defensive, hard and attacking without asking questions. So he continues, he says, a person who laments may sound on the surface like he's grumbling, vocalizing anguish, anger, and confusion. But, and here's the key point, a lament involves even deeper emotion because lament is truly asking, seeking, and knocking to comprehend the heart of God. A lament involves the energy to search, not shut down the quest for truth. It is a passion to ask rather than to rant and rave with already formed conclusions. A lament uses the language of pain, anger, and confusion and moves toward God. Do you see the difference here? A complaint has no interest in comprehending the heart of God. A complaint says, I've reached this conclusion. You have no time for me. This is it. There's not a true, God, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. I'm lost. I'm confused. I'm not certain. I don't get it. And I'm moving towards, in all of this, wanting to know the heart of God. See, a complaint has no interest in moving towards God, while a lament is actually quite bold. A lament is bold in expressing its longing and its longing for the heart of God. It's bold in pursuing the one that it depends upon, the one who is enthroned, the one to whom they willingly submit. Bold in pursuing mercy and aid. So the question is, becomes, how can we be that bold? Bold in our trust. 
bold in knowing and wanting to know and pursue the very heart of God whose ways are not our ways and whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whom we do not understand. See, from the psalmist's perspective here, do you notice that this particular psalm ends without clear resolution? We're over it. I'm tired of the scorn of those who are at ease and who are proud. But we look at it from a New Testament perspective, and what do we see? We see Jesus Christ, who took on the role of a servant on our behalf. And I want you to see something here. Here's the psalmist expressing his lament and having to continue to suffer contempt at the hands of the arrogant and powerful. But we know one who suffered the greatest contempt and did so for us and for our sins. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53 says that he, and he was the suffering servant fulfilled in Jesus Christ, Listen to the language. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And of course the gospel writers describe for us how Jesus was mocked, despised, and rejected. In Mark 15 we read they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Friends, do you realize that Jesus' torment was so much more than physical, without downplaying the utter torment and the anguish of the physical, do you recognize the torment of soul that Jesus went through? See, do we understand truly the pain and the power of contempt? Allender continues, he says, contempt is an assault against the glory God intends his children to bear. It sears and it stings, mirroring the mockery of evil. In fact, no emotion is more often chosen by the evil one to assault the gospel than contempt. Why is contempt so powerful? Why is it so often the prime weapon of the arrogant to control the weak? One reason for the extraordinary power of contempt is that it isolates us as unlovable, worthless, and withering our hope for love. This is what the psalmist has had enough of. And we get it. If we've ever suffered contempt, we understand it. But do you recognize that this is what Jesus Christ suffered and endured on our behalf for our contempt of him? Don't you dare see that it was just others mocking and spitting and paying false homage to him. It was us who stripped him of his glory every time we steal his glory. It is us who are treating him with utter scorn and indignity, the indignity he endured in the mocking and the spitting, the rejection, the crown of thorns, in order to unnerve us and bring us home with true mercy. See, what is the psalmist praying for? What he knows is I want the mercy of relief. 
Do you know we need and we are given a greater mercy? See, do you see your contempt toward God? And as much as we, like the psalmist, can lament and rightly lament the contempt we receive from ourselves and others, do you see our greatest need is for mercy, for our contempt towards God? And what does God give us? He gives us the ultimate mercy. Again, Allender says mercy is hard to endure. In fact, mercy is harder to receive than contempt. Both contempt and mercy strip away pretense and expose the heart, but mercy offers the exposed soul the opportunity to embrace desire and hope. His mercy is greater than my contempt. He loves me and he smiles with delight towards me because of Christ's enduring my contempt towards him. God's kindness toward us is almost harder to bear than his apparent neglect or anger. His kindness requires us to let down our guard and receive. Just when we are so sure that he will deposit a snake in our outstretched hand. In his odd mercy, however, he handles our contempt by cursing his own son. Our contempt will never be shattered until we are unnerved by God's contempt toward the arrogant and we are drawn to the horror of the father cursing the son. We will never look into God's eyes and see contempt or mockery, no matter how hard our heart becomes or how far we flee. The Father's response at our return is not cold, cruel, cutting eyes, but the open arms of one who knows joy, not contempt toward us. We pray for mercy of relief, and He gives us the mercy of love, forgiveness, freedom, and kindness. Will you receive the mercy of the longing soul? Let your guard down and let his heart and eyes of kindness look toward you in Christ because Christ suffered the indignity of contempt on our behalf. Father, I do pray that we as a people would let our guard down to receive your kindness toward us. Father, thank you for the mercy that you give us in Christ. Teach us, Father, to be honest, to wrestle with you, and then to know that your ultimate purpose in our lives is to show us the mercy that you have accomplished for us in Christ. Help us to see Jesus in all things. We pray in his name. Amen.